Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, so we're going to do uh, what we occasionally do today uh, on the show today, which is our version of a conversation about sports. One of the reasons I wanted to do it is that at the end of the show, I wanted you to hear one episode of a podcast that's been created here in our station by producer Jonathan McNichol. It's called The Second First Season. Um, this uh, episode that you're going to hear, and, you know, even if you're not a sports fan, there's just things that are very uh, interesting and beautiful about this podcast and also sort of profoundly I mean, he's sad isn't quite the right word. I'm going to spoil one thing if Jonathan will let me do this. So just for an example, the kind of poignant detail that you will hear. When I was growing up, I'm really, really old. When I was growing up, one of the sporting icons of Hartford uh, was a guy named Gene Conley, who had played uh, both NBA basketball and Major League Baseball, um, ultimately. He actually participated in world championships in both sports, which is very unusual. And uh, But... The- <laughs> This podcast that you're going to hear, I mean, one of the little things you'll hear is a description of a Gene Conley night for the Hartford Chiefs, where they honor Gene Conley by, among other things, and I'm not kidding, passing the hat in the stands so that people would put money in. And he got $600, and that was, like, to him, like, really great that he got $600 in this completely humiliating way. But that's sort of the way, you know, sports were that way uh, back in that day. They were much more like that than they are like this. So, uh, but they're like this now. Joining us right now, it's also just a great excuse to have one of our favorite Colin McEnroe show guests, Will Leach, contributing editor at New York Magazine, senior writer at Sports on Earth, founder of Deadspin, a whole bunch of other things. And he's joining us through the miracle of Skype uh, today. Will, welcome back to the show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I was wondering if that's possibly a financial model for sports writing. If we can just literally pass a hat around every single time after someone reads a story. It might be humiliating, but you know what? That's my kind of humiliation. Exactly. Humiliation where you end with $600 is different from humiliation where you get nothing. It's different from humiliation where Bryce Harper puts you in a garbage can and rolls you down the stairs. Yes, and boy, do I know that one well. Exactly. All right. So, yeah, all of us nerds understand what it's like to have Bryce Harper do something bad to you. We're going to come to that. But Will and I are going to begin just with the conversation about something that you may not follow all that much, even though it's sort of the most exciting thing happening in sports right now, and that would be the NBA playoffs. And I think, you know, people, maybe if you have a childhood rooting interest, maybe you've stayed with it. But I think people kind of just drift away a little bit from this, even though, as Jim Chapdelaine was pointing out today, I mean, these are the most superbly tuned athletes you're ever going to see. And when they're playing well, it's he says it's like jazz. You know, it's not the Utah jazz either, but just jazz in general. Um, so Will has been uh, tr- trying to help you figure out whom you might want to root for, what bandwagon you might want to join. I believe there are six teams left in the hunt due to some very quick blowouts here. So um, first of all, Will, do you, are you rooting for anybody who's left? I mean, or are you just helping yeah. us? Uh, my, my mistake, of course, one of my major failings, one of the many major failings of myself as a human being is that I am a Knicks fan. So obviously okay. I have no active rooting interest when it comes to the playoff season. But uh, yeah, I tried to put together a list of 
of, of the eight teams now, there there are fewer teams. There are six teams left now. But of the teams that were still in the playoffs, what you're rooting against me, my generally speaking, I ultimately landed on the Houston Rockets. For me, the Houston Rockets are a team that they are as close as you are. If you read Moneyball, if you like baseball, if you like the Oakland A's thing, the Houston Rockets are probably the team that is the closest to that. They've kind of done it this unconventional way, this analytical fashion. They've had Mike D'Antoni, this poor coach who had to coach Kobe Bryant and Carmelo Anthony in the two major markets of Los Angeles and New York. No small job for anyone. He has survived both those places and gone to Houston and had a very, you know, we as Americans, we love underdogs. We love surprise stories. Houston is an underdog team so if you're looking if you're completely unaffiliated and just want a rooting interest out of nowhere i feel like the rockets are an excellent pick now of course we're here in new england i do i happen not to be a celtics fan although neither am i a celtics antagonist um but i mean i think there's a compelling case this year for the celtics and i think the compelling case almost consists uh, of isaiah thomas who i mean well i actually you you can you can summarize among other things the many woes uh, and then the many excellences of Isaiah Thomas better than I can. Yeah, you know, Isaiah Thomas, who is is actually the shortest player in the NBA. There's, there's no one smaller. He's five foot nine. Uh, the, even the days the days of Muggsy Bogues are gone. Five foot nine is about as small as you're going to get in the NBA today. But, you know, he is someone that was traded by a lot of other teams, was drafted very, picked very low in the draft, was never really thought to be any sort of star. And he's had this amazing season for the Celtics. He's had this breakthrough year. He's been an MVP candidate. And right before the playoffs began, the biggest series of his career is kind of culminating event. His sister was killed in a car accident. I wrote a piece about this for Sports on Earth about the weirdness of this that not only, of course, did this terrible thing happen, but he essentially had to grieve in public in a way that really no one else in our public discourse has to. We would never ask a politician or a celebrity or anyone. Like one thinks that, you know, it's a big game. There's a camera in his face. And he has to deal with just, as we all know, if we've gone through any sort of life tragedy like that, how confounding and devastating it is. And he had to kind of process that on live television and in the most, biggest, most competitive games of his life. So without question, uh, his story, of course, then also – he started to play better, and he started to get them going, and he got his front two teeth knocked out in the middle of a game, or his front tooth knocked out. So Isaiah Thomas has really, he's definitely a very, very compelling character. I argue that he's actually the Celtics as the second most rootable team. The only thing the Celtics have going against them, because it's not just Isaiah Thomas, also what Brad Stevens has built there and what the Danny has put together. It's a very smart franchise. It's really building for the future. It's just going to go up for them from here. Really, the only thing the Celtics have going against them is that they are the Celtics. <laughs> the Celtics have, of course, have um, the storied franchise in the NBA, have won all these championships. In an underdog society, it's hard to root, even if this team is in particular an underdog team. The Celtics are certainly not an underdog franchise. So it's hard to to say that they are America's team when, people, when most of the country has spent most of their adult lives learning to dislike the Celtics, even though this particular Celtics this team team is absolutely not unlikable. Yeah, I mean, I totally get that. And and I just wanted to pause over a couple of things about Isaiah Thomas. First of all, not only did he get one teeth, one tooth knocked out, and I think two more subluxed, whatever that means, but then they had to put in some bridge, you know, for the these knocked out and messed up teeth, and that got broken too. <laughs> they broke the bridge that they put in there. Somebody else did that. And I, But more importantly, I mean, I think 5'9", as often is the case, might be kind of a charitable estimation of his height. He may be actually shorter than that. And and I think for people who don't follow basketball that much, you think about somebody being that short and you just think of it exclusively in terms of liabilities. And on defense, maybe it kind of is. But watching him play, 
and I'm not a Celtics fan necessarily, but watching him play, there are moments where they get him with the ball isolated on some larger player. And I think, you know, there's a mental thing for a lot of people who go, oh, poor guy. He, Markeith Morris is guarding him. Markeith Morris is so much bigger. Whereas Isaiah Thomas is going, oh boy, Markeith Morris <laughs> is, is guarding me. The, the sky's the limit in terms of what I can do now. I have four or five really good choices that result in either three or two point baskets. I just have to pick one of them. You know? Yeah. And it's really funny too, because, you know, this is the way – it's funny. We talk about people that may have drifted away from the NBA. One of the great things about the NBA this year and one of the reasons it's really had this big resurgence, you know, the, for a long time, basketball was a game for giants. And Wilt Chamberlain dominated. Then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dominated. Then, then Shaquille O'Neal dominated. Michael Jordan had a little era. Of course, Michael Jordan was 6'6". Six, six. Like, he was hardly some tiny person. But, but other than that, generally speaking, this game has been dominated by huge, tall players. But the game, because of some changes made by the NBA and because of some of the talents that have come in – the, the guards, small guards who can play both point and can shoot, which are really, by definition, the most exciting players in the game. Those are the most relatable. They do the most fun things. They have taken over the game, not just Isaiah Thomas, but, of course, Steph Curry and, and all, all around the league, uh, James Harden, Russell Westbrook. It's a guard-oriented game. So to see someone like Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas being able to thrive, not only is it easy, fun to root for, he's fun to watch. It's just a it's – a, it's a, it's a, individual game where you're not just seeing some big guy blocking everything it's it's really a blast to watch him and uh again if they weren't the celtics would be a very likable team uh it's just the fact that it's hard to look past the green sometimes you know the other thing that it occurred to me is that one thing that's changed a bit since i started out being a basketball fan is that because of just the amount of video acreage that's available on on cable stations and, and various kinds of sports coverage athletes have more chances to talk in studio situations and you know to and also also there's a ton of online stuff in fact you well, unintentionally perhaps wound up guiding me to something something called the starters on the NBA mm-hmm. website and so you know, baseball players, for the most part, are not interesting when they start talking. I mean, there are exceptions, but they're kind of tight-assed, you know, uh, people who who don't really want to say very much. Um, and and football players, yeah, a little bit of a balance. But, you know, a lot of NBA players are very – a lot of fun to listen to when they start talking. You know, we could talk, start with Charles Barkley and move on from there. And I think that's another thing the NBA has going for it, that in a world where people are listening to your athletes talk more, you actually have some athletes who are kind of entertaining to listen to. Yeah, and we know we get to see them too, and that's really not to be underestimated. You know, particularly in football, where every player is is covered, of course, covered in a helmet. In baseball, a sport that's kind of so emotionally repressed yes. that when a pitcher does something great, he's taught to cover his face with his glove so that, that no one sees his enjoyment. Right. So it doesn't seem that he's, he's showing them up. Basketball, to me, the most compelling player in the league this year. Some people think he's the MVP. He probably will win the MVP. But certainly, the most compelling player this year was Russell Westbrook, because mm-hmm. Russell Westbrook is a player who plays as if his heart is leaping out of his chest mm. and as a viewer to watch someone even there even if you are not connected to the game or not a fan of Oklahoma City to watch someone who cares so deeply and all of his emotions are right there on his face it's something that is deeply satisfying and deeply enjoyable to watch and I think is a uniquely NBA experience that with today's society where we want to see more of our athletes we want to feel like we know them a little bit and be closer to them it's a sport that, that that's very finely tuned for that and there's something very Promethean about Russell 
Westbrook, too, in the sense that, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder, they're not really a particularly good team right now. There was an incident late in the season where some you know, one of these sort of post-game interviews, somebody was trying to ask some questions of his fellow players about why they weren't any good. And Russell Westbrook just just cut them off. You know, he just, you, you're, you can't, next question, move on. You can't talk about that, you know. And, but, I, but it must be sort of eating him up, too, that he's really not on a team like the Cavaliers or the Warriors where, in fact, he would be able to win championships all the time. And, you know, of course, he was recently teammates with Kevin Durant. He lost right. Kevin Durant to go to the Golden State Warriors. And it's funny, this is, has been this year of righteous fury and anger for uh, for Russell Westbrook. I think sometimes he is obviously an incredible player. And I think he's going to win the MVP. But I think you can see, and it's funny that as much as it's an individual game now, and people like to see these guys uh, have their big individual moments, basketball, ball don't lie, as the, old, as the old kind of statement goes. The game itself tends to constrain. Oklahoma City, while it's been this incredible vessel to watch Westbrook this year, an argument could be made that he has actually made his team a little bit worse because he has taken over so much. He's like that guy when you're on the when you're teaming with someone in a pickup game that's not good. So you're like, I'm gonna have to take this game over. Right. Oftentimes you make your team worse. Westbrook has done that on an NBA level for an entire season in a way that's generally kind of unprecedented. It's been fun to watch, but when he played a team like the Rockets that really put moved the ball around and played generally team basketball, they really didn't have much of a chance. When this all gets sorted out, I mean, whoever we might decide to root for based on humanistic decisions or humorous decisions, we might wind up with something very similar to what we had last year, right? Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. And as good as Russell Westbrook is, you know, LeBron James has sort of turned into this guy who occasionally looks like he wishes there were some other sport besides basketball that would fully tap everything that he could do. You know, like it's fine playing basketball and he's really good at it, but like why? I wish they could invent like another dimension of this that I could play where I would really be able to show people everything that I'm good at. Um, and so, I don't know, are you expecting that same final? Uh, I am. I will say just on a side note about LeBron James and that, that kind of athletic ability as a fan of the U.S. men's national team, imagining what LeBron would be like as a soccer player is really kind of a beautiful <laughs> uh, notion, almost as beautiful as it is in basketball. I think we're going to get Golden State in Cleveland probably for the, this would be for the third uh, consecutive year, but it would be kind of the rubber match as they as they say. And I think it might be the most compelling one, you know, because Golden State, obviously they, they won the championship two years ago. Last year they had the best record in the NBA's regular season history, but lost to Cleveland and LeBron and really LeBron's signature achievement as one of the top five basketball players of all time. So what they do, they brought in Kevin Durant, one of the top five players in the NBA right now. Golden State brings him in. This has been a super team. Neither team has lost in the first two rounds of the playoffs. I know that there's a sense, one of the people, the reason that people were frustrated when Durant went to the Warriors was that, well, now we feel like we, we're going to know who's in the finals. And I think there's an argument to that to be true. I think those, I think we're going to end up seeing the finals that we thought we would see. However, once we get there, if it's been a compelling regular season anyway, but once we get there, that to see these teams go at each other again, really for their entire legacies and the kind of the futures of the sport at, at stake, it's absolutely compelling to watch, to see really LeBron, who I think you could make a pretty compelling argument, particularly if he wins the title this year, maybe is the only person that could challenge Michael Jordan as the greatest NBA player of all time against this Golden State Warriors team, which at times looks as beautiful and perfect as basketball is meant to be. To see that in the NBA Finals again, I know it's a rematch. I know we've seen it before. But to me, that's almost, it's like a television show. You know the characters even better now, so you're more invested in their fates when in the in the third season of the series. <laughs> We're talking to Will Leach, uh, a writer who often makes 
makes me laugh out loud. He made me laugh out loud today in describing the Golden State Warriors' ownership as uh, a bunch of Silicon Valley Ayn Randians who think they have everything figured out. Um, so uh, you should read his rootability rankings, his NBA playoff rootability rankings for yourself. Make your own decisions. We'll take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about this season in baseball. And not lose the ball in the sun. And then I'd awake from this long reverie and pray that the ball never came out to me. This is our show about sports. Uh, Will Leach is with us, contributing editor at New York Magazine, senior writer at Sports on Earth, founder of Deadspin, so many other things, author of um, many interesting books as well, which we recommend that you get. Will and I both talk kind of fast. And if you're listening to this <laughs> on a podcast, you remember you have that times one half option where you can actually play it at a slower speed uh, and make it easier uh, for you. So, uh, Will, in addition to writing about sports, you know, and write a lot about culture. Um, and I know you're kind of an expert in Guardians of the Galaxy. And so I was posing to you that many of the things happening in Major League Baseball uh, this year would be would make sense if you started with the notion that the Cree, who are this impossibly evil uh, race of uh, technologically advanced beings, uh, are trying to take over Major League Baseball. And so I know there are some arguments against that, but let's talk start with the arguments for. I think tonight the Mets and the Giants start a uh, a series. Uh, there are many people in our listenership who inexplicably are Mets fans. Um, these are two teams who, I mean, it really does seem as though some unseen power is attempting to lay waste to them. Yeah, uh, the Met, the Giants, the power has just finally broken through for the Giants this year. They, they've really had the kind of, the Crees certainly were helping them in 2010, 2012, 2014. The argument, of course, the Giants winning those three World Series in five years is actually an argument for the weirdness of baseball postseason as opposed to the argument for the awesomeness of the Giants. I think they really only had one great team uh, during that time. And I think now their players are getting older and they're starting to regress a little bit. And obviously, Mass and Bumgarner's uh, dirt bike crash, which set watch while very painful to the Giants, it's a dirt bike crash, so it's probably pretty gnarly and probably pretty <laughs> awesome so even though it, was, it really hurt the giants it's a dirt bike so he's thrashing um uh, but the mets however there is their their pain is i think on a longer time frame one of the really kind of worrying things about the mets is you know i remember i lived in new york city for 13 years i live in georgia now but i lived in new york city for 13 years i moved out there in the year 2000 and there were people there that told me Listen, I know the Yankees dominate everything right now, but there was a time where the Mets ruled the world. And I said, yeah, no way. No way did the Mets ever rule the city. And there was a brief moment there during the dark night, Matt Harvey days and the Thor uh, Syndergaard days where you sensed and they made the World Series in 2015. It really felt like this was going to be the Mets moment. And the scary thing about the Mets right now you start to wonder whether not only that has moment has passed, but if the Yankee, but in fact, if the Yankees have refilled that gap, the Mets, their everything that has gone wrong for them could not just in injuries, but in off-field discord and all sorts of ugliness. The Mets are in a the Mets are dangerously similar to the Knicks right now, which is one of the worst things I can say about them. Right. So just to help people uh, not familiar with uh, everything we're talking about, understand. So the Mets have these two pitchers, um, one of whom uh, Matt Harvey has been known in the past as the Dark Knight. I've never quite entirely understood why, but he's from Mystic, Connecticut, by the way, which was where we were on Friday. Uh, and uh, Noah Syndergaard, who's known as Thor because he has 
long hair. I think that's why. So um, this is we see the Cree thing is really working better and mm-hmm. better when you look at, it, look at it that way. But so Matt Harvey has had this inexplicable set of problems. Uh, you know, Bumgarner, we know what happened. His dirt bike crashed. You hurt his shoulder. Why are you riding your dirt bike when you're making uh, X billion dollars as a baseball pitcher? I don't quite understand. But, you know, with Matt Harvey, there's like this mysterious thing where he was suspended for three days and the club officials were visiting him and he was wearing his pajamas. And I don't I, I, can you sketch that out for people? What is that? Well, you know, Matt Harvey, even when, when he was at his peak, he was still kind of known for maybe not having the best conditioning habits and maybe having a, a more fulfilling nightlife than necessarily <laughs> the Mets management would have preferred. But when he was, you know, when he was pitching, throwing 98 mile an hour fastballs and, and riveting city field, no one seemed to mind. But now that he has started to struggle, he's coming back from thoracic outlet surgery, which is a very painful, long rehab uh, surgery to recover from. He's really not back to his old self. The Mets have become more frustrated with the conditioning and with kind of the late nights. And that led to the culmination of he was supposed to pitch on Sunday and then on Friday night on set late, late Friday, of course, was Cinco de Mayo. Saturday uh, was a day where, where Harvey was supposed to be at the park and then called in and said, I'm not going to be able to make it. I have a crazy headache. I can't make it. So the Mets, I think, having dealt with Harvey's history at some point, sent a couple of security guys over to see what was going on. They found him at home in his pajamas. Uh, but, of course, now there's been a report that he was out. He actually was out on Friday night. And it really is the sort of thing that – with the Mets struggling as they are, with a lot of arguments about how how they handled Noah Syndergaard's injury, and the general notion that when you play in New York, everyone is going to jump on any potential conflict between player and management. This has become a massive story for a team that really has enough problems right now. And I think I think Harvey is is a good example of how in New York, specifically with the Mets, you can go from being like the Dark Knight. Again, I always thought the Dark Knight was a little bit silly too. That I always enjoy. That uh, that Matt, Matt Harvey is also the this is an actual title the New York City bureau chief for the Players Tribune, the <laughs> the online magazine run by athletes. Which I love the idea of him wakes up uh, Matt Harvey wakes up in the morning and puts on a press hat and says there's a million stories in this city and I'm gonna go find them all. So Matt Harvey certainly has had a long history with New York. I think that started to change now and I think people are turning on him and that's the type of thing that happens with a, with an organization like the Mets that's generally kind of dysfunctional. Right. So among their other problems and Will and I are not going to dwell on these but uh, or on this, but was a, a photograph taken in their locker room where it became uh, <laughs> obvious upon further scrutiny, as they say, that in somebody's locker room there was a, a sex to- toy uh, that replicated a certain part of the male anatomy. Will and I are now prepared to say that that is not a sex toy. Those are the actual genitalia of the silver surfer removed by the Cree in an act mm-hmm. of terrible vengeance. Um, so further, further uh, making that case. So I want to give you, I mean, we could talk a little bit about the problems the Red Sox are having with beanballs and retaliation or the incredibly long game uh, that the uh, Yankees and the Cubs played, which caused all kinds of travel problems, travel problems much in the news, the woebegone San Francisco Giants, their bus burst into flames <laughs> on the way, way, in a symbol of their season. But before we do that, I want you, I want you to have a chance to say something really uh, anti-Cree about baseball. And you become, you, you have reminded us that we may be in the presence of two of the really superbly multi-talented, perfectly gifted base, young baseball players of all time, Mike Trout and, and Bryce Harper, not to be confused with Bryce Dallas Howard. I get the person who played <laughs> the, the robot on Westworld mixed up with Bryce Harper a lot. So, I mean, make that case that, these, that, that we, we, should be, we should count ourselves fortunate to, to be watching them unfold their sagas. 
Yeah, they are. What's very strange about that Harper and Trout is they are once in a generation talents that happen to land in baseball at the exact same time. That's confusing us all that there are, in fact, two of them. They are both. Uh, my, my, you know, it's funny. There's been much excitement about Aaron Judge, uh, the New York Yankees slugger, who is I don't want to overstate this, but I think is 11 feet tall. He's, he's basically Groot. <laughs> and so uh, keeping with our theme here, and he's this exciting young hitter that the Yankees have and they're all excited about. Bryce Harper is, in fact, still younger than him. Bryce Harper is in his fifth year in the major leagues and has is, is still younger than almost all the prospects. And he's only one year younger than Mike Trout, who's already won two MVP awards. Uh, really what you're seeing from those two players, you know, basically it's hard for us to process, but we basically got Mickey Mantle and Barry Bonds in, right next to one another. <laughs> and, and I think it's a really, it's a hard thing for us to kind of handle. And one key thing that I think is going to really be uh, a big factor in the, in the upcoming years, they're both going to be free agents and they're both going to be free agents very soon. And you're going to see how for baseball has made, a, I think it had a little bit of success lately. It no, it no longer seems to have that notion that, oh, well, the teams with the most money win every year. That was a common complaint about baseball for a long time. Now there seems to be an equivalent thing. The Kansas City Royals are winning the World Series. The Chicago Cubs somehow won the World Series, of course, causing the world to end ever since then. That's happened, as we all kind of warned it would. Um, but now there's a sense of democracy in baseball that any team can win. You wonder when these two transcendent players who are doing things that are really only the top at this age – only the top tier Hall of Famers ever did when they both become free agents. If they both become New York Yankees, you're going to hear all sorts of yelling about that again. Um, and, you know, and Bryce Harper also is one of these. Uh, I mean, we could watch Mike Trout for the rest of his career and know relatively little about him. And whereas with Bryce Harper, we know too much. Right. I mean, although there's some nice things about him, he once gave a jar full of money to a homeless woman and things like that. He seems like kind of a jerk most of the time. He certainly is brash in a way that baseball is often uncomfortable with. It's funny we talked about the NBA yeah. a little bit and how the NBA very much encourages its players to show their personality and to be outlandish. Baseball's culture, I think, to its detriment. I think we saw during the World Baseball Classic how much fun it can be when there is excitement and there is exuberance and there is joy. Baseball's culture is to tamp that down and tamp down the individual kind of excitement and, and personality. Bryce Harper is not like that. I interviewed Bryce Harper when he was still in high school for Esquire magazine, and he told me he wanted to be Le LeBron James of baseball. And he was 18. Can you imagine how, crust, how those crusty old baseball players thought about that? But that's the way he's always kind of been. That is inevitably going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. But generally speaking, his teammates love playing with him. It's opponents that don't love playing with him. And for what it's worth, if you look throughout baseball history, who are the baseball players we remember? Reggie Jackson, Barry Bonds, these players that always rub guys the wrong way and, and, and tend to be these kind of brash characters. Those are the ones we remember because that's kind of, I feel like is is silly to think that that is not wrapped up somewhat uh, with greatness. And I think to me, baseball needs more guys like Bryce Harper who are, even if you watch him, be like, oh, I can't stand that guy. And I'm a Cardinals fan. When he plays my team, I can't stand him and I'm booing him and I want him to go away. But that is excitement. That is engaging with baseball. That's what you want out of the sport. I think that's something that Harper is particularly good at providing. Right. You say his teammates love him. This is the complexity of it all. You say his teammates love him. One teammate who has not loved him <laughs> is Jonathan Papelbon. But the fact that he may have punched Jonathan Papelbon in the dugout would be 
be a point in in Bryce Harper's favor as far that's as one of, that's one of his teammates' favorite things about him. I think <laughs> <laughs> humanity's favorite things about him. Yes. So we've got just a little, uh, just about a, a minute or a minute and change left. Uh, there was this incredible uh, 187 inning uh, game between the Yankees and the Cubs, a, a game that made a mockery of something called the seventh inning stretch. Um, should there be ties in baseball? Not ties like not wearing ties on the field. I mean, should they allow? baseball games to be tied once in a while rather than play these games where like you know people miss you know half of the rest of their lives i don't think so i do agree by the way there should be actual physical bolo ties yeah, in baseball nice. i think yeah. it would be very yeah. enjoyable uh makes sliding potentially dangerous <laughs> but exciting uh i would say i don't uh, i i listen i understand that we kind of live in a culture now this thing happened that's unusual that made me uncomfortable let's get rid of it but to <laughs> me i think there is something kind of fun about a game that goes 18 innings that same day i was actually at a cardinals braves game that went 14 innings and every single person that was left at the end of that 14 innings was a were best friends right <laughs> we felt like we we had traveled the oregon trail together so i feel like there was something to that i like that kind of process the same way that a hockey playoff game overtime game has that same kind of in endurance level i think it makes for a better game all right will leach we got to go but this has been hilarious and fun and interesting as per usual uh we when we come back you'll hear jonathan's uh, podcast really listen to this it's uh even if you don't sort of get baseball maybe you'll get some things you never got before Today's show was produced by me, Kyone Wolf, and Jonathan McPants, who wants to remind you that the other guys put on their McPants one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Amanda Fish roots for the Marlins, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Van Lingle Mungo. On tomorrow's show, what do Ayn Rand fans do besides try to run the Golden State Warriors? But right now, a special episode of Jonathan's podcast, The Second First Season. Peter Morris writes in his History of Baseball Groundskeeping that Dirt is now a rare sight in urban areas, and unless embellished by a baseball game, it looks a bit forlorn, as though it somehow senses that someone might decide that a parking lot would go nicely in its place. That's a funny sentence to read here in Hartford, where we just did the exact opposite, where we just turned a sea of parking lots into a baseball field, surrounded by a baseball stadium, surrounded by a sea of parking lots. But it's funny, too, to think of here. I'm standing on another dirt and grass field in Hartford, and... This one's been here entirely unpaved since at least the 1860s. This field is known as the Baseball Garden, and it's nestled into this one block. Behind me is Willis Street. Out across the field is a big, ornate brownstone building, the Caldwell Colt Memorial House. To my left is the Church of the Good Shepherd, a Gothic temple that's been here since 1869. It's called the Baseball Garden because Major League Baseball was once played here, because Hartford's Major League Baseball team played here. In 1876, the first year of the National League, this was the site of the Hartford Baseball Grounds, home of the Hartford Dark Blues. And standing here kind of where home plate would have been, looking out into the same clearing that hitters like Live Oak Taylor or Lip Pike would have, I can picture that some of these trees might have been here when Mark Twain came to the games. I can imagine the sounds of fastballs and flyballs and foul balls echoing off the church's stone facade. 
That was the beginning of Hartford's long history of professional baseball, a history that seemed like it had ended some 65 seasons ago. But it turns out it hadn't. From WNPR, this is the second first season, a behind-the-scenes podcast about the making of a baseball team on a year-long do-over. I'm Jonathan McNichol, and I want to get this spoiler out of the way right at the top here. Hartford has baseball. The Yard Goats have a ballpark, and the ballpark, after a 372-day delay, has a fully functional baseball field where real, live, professional baseball games are actually played. Dunkin' Donuts Park officially opened on Thursday, April 13th with a sold-out, standing-room-only crowd reported at 6,850 people and a 7-2 yard goats loss to the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. But the Tuesday before the park opened for real, it had its soft opening, a kind of dress rehearsal game, a college baseball game, that the stadium staff used to sort of beta test everything before opening day. The scoreboards got used for real for the first time, the bathrooms got used for real for the first time. The nacho cheese melters got to melt something like actual cheese. And the playing field got to see something like actual game action. Yeah, I mean, we're anxious. I went and talked to Kyle Calhoun, who is the turf manager, the head groundskeeper, that is, at Dunkin' Donuts Park before the soft opening game. So now this is the first game. So, of course, you know, we're, we're anxious to see how it plays. Calhoun is, as far as I can tell, the one person involved with the year-long delay in building the stadium who was actually happy about it. Uh, we had the season canceled. So we had a full year for the field to grow in, which I always say is the only benefit to this um, unfortunate situation is the field had a, had a chance to, to root. In John McPhee's 1968 profile of the head groundskeeper at Wimbledon, he wrote that Mr. Twynham regards each blade of grass as an individual with its own needs, its own destiny, and its own right to grow on this blessed piece of lawn. Kyle Calhoun strikes me as more laid back than that. He's from Ohio, but I would have believed him if he'd told me he's from the West Coast. He seems like the kind of guy who'd spend a lot of the off-season surfing if you weren't so busy taking care of an empty baseball field instead. Calhoun maybe doesn't imbue each individual blade of grass with its own needs and destiny, but he's still pretty specific about his blessed piece of lawn. We cut every day. We keep the infield about seven-eighths, and we keep the outfield at an inch. Every day they mow so that every day the field is the same as it was the day before, down to the eighth of an inch. It doesn't necessarily need to be mowed every day, but it's just for the players to have that same roll, to have the same hop. We just want to keep that cut at the exact same height for every game. And it's not just a consistency of length that they try to mow to either. I don't like crisscrossing too many lines. It just doesn't uh, help the playability of the ball as it's coming towards the outfield. Because it's thought that too many competing angles cut into the grass cause the ball to snake as it bounces or rolls. I try to keep the pattern pretty uh, straightforward. They mow the lawn and they water the lawn and they drain the lawn. There's more than a mile of piping under the field for irrigation and drainage. But it's not just the grass, it's the dirt, too. A corkboard-like consistency is what we look for. Cleat in, cleat out. We don't want any chunking when the players are running. Well, I shouldn't say dirt. The infield that the yard guts play on, I guess, is more complicated than just dirt. It's an engineered soil, and it's uh, 60% sand, 20% clay, and 20% silt. But so they water and drain the grass, 
and they water and drain the engineered soil, too. It's, it's a fine line. Uh, too dry, it's going to chunk out. Too wet, you're, it's going to be muddy. Uh, it's trying to find that right consistency, and we're, we're going to be here tonight watching to make sure that we have it. And they mow the grass, and they rake the soil. I just take a rake, and I, I'll walk it over and just try to open up that top quarter-inch layer just to um, kind of take out all the footprints. Just to try to take out all the footprints. This is the main thing I noticed watching Calhoun and his full-time assistant and their seven-man, and they're all men, by the way, their seven-man game day staff work before and after the game. They're basically making a brand-new baseball field every day. They cut the grass to the same length it was yesterday. They rake the footprints out of the infield dirt. I mean, we're constantly just adding moisture to it. So when they're They repair the whole home plate area so it looks like it's never been used before. You know, they're going to make a hole basically where they land and where they take off. Uh, they rebuild the pitcher's mound so it's like no one's ever pitched on it before. You add the clay, tamp it in, uh, you try to scratch it out, make sure you get They rake and sweep and blow any clay and soil out of the grass around the baselines in the infield. And then we'll take a larger tamp to try to even it out. They spray paint home plate white before each game. And then the next day we'll actually come back with a vibrating tamp to try to smooth it all out again. I asked Calhoun in the afternoon about repainting the foul lines in the batter's boxes. And I didn't really appreciate what he told me at the time. Well, at the end of the night, we'll basically pick up all the foul lines and start fresh the next day. I didn't understand what he meant by, we'll basically pick up all the foul lines until after the game, when I saw that they actually scoop out any soil that has any paint on it and leave behind only fresh, clean dirt. Yes, fresh, clean dirt that can be painted anew tomorrow. This is the Sporting News in 1893, describing Pittsburgh's then-groundskeeper's daily routine. Every day the club is home, the ground is rolled, and the field is thoroughly sprinkled with water. Then the groundkeeper goes over the entire infield with a rake and levels the ground, fills up all the ground, and every little defect is looked after. Then the ground is rolled again. After the work has all been attended to, the pitcher and batter's box is chalked. Then the baselines, the coachers, and the outside boundary lines are all lined with chalk. Peter Morris is the author of Level Playing Fields, a book about how groundskeeping has shaped baseball. I asked him, based on that description from the 1890s, if maintaining a field has really changed all that much in all this time. Yeah, I mean, the basic tasks of groundkeeping haven't changed that much. So obviously some of the nice mowers that you see today uh, you obviously didn't see in the 19th century. I mean, it was a really difficult thing just to get a field sort of remotely playable. Morris makes the point, actually, that a lot of the very design of the baseball field as we know it, and then the very design of baseball as we know it, was originally dictated by the fields that were available and the groundskeeping that was possible. Baseball was kind of designed so that you could sort of portion off of the outfield and say, okay, the outfielders can fend for themselves, and if if there's a few stumps out there, then that's their problem, and they'll have to deal with it. And the infield needed to be a little more cared for. But that meant you could just put it, take a 90-foot square area and designate that as the infield. Those words infield and outfield actually come from farming. Farmers tended much more closely to their infields and let their outfields grow a bit more wild. One of the things that you see today you know, that, that you don't really think about now is, is outfielders will run and as they're running, they're looking at the ball the whole time. And you'll say, don't take your eyes off the ball. But, I mean, the 19th century, you know, that would have been terrible advice because if you're running in the outfield and you're just looking at the ball, you're, you're going to hit a, a stump or something and fall flat on your face. But so this is why foul territory exists. It's why there are home runs if you hit the ball beyond the boundary of the outfield. All those areas are areas that groundskeepers didn't have to keep. And actually, groundskeeping is why the pitcher's mound exists, too. 
So the mound came out of uh, the mound was just a defensive mechanism at first against rain, and it wasn't you know the, uh, the idea wasn't that the pitcher should, ought to be higher up than the batter, but just that you know the pitcher needed to have needed not to get too much mud in his cleats. And it may just be that the pitcher's mound was invented in Hartford too. This is the Trenton Times in 1885. When the Trenton team reached the Hartford ground yesterday, they found five men with sponges hard at work on the diamond, and the pitcher was mounted on a pile of sawdust. The Trenton team came to play at the Hartford ground in 1885, but that wasn't the Hartford baseball grounds, the ones on Willis Street. The Hartford baseball grounds were the city's baseball park back in the 1870s, Back when, whether hardly anybody knows about it now or not, Hartford had a major league baseball team, the Hartford Dark Blues. That's absolutely true. It's true that they had a major league team, and it's true that hardly anybody knows about it. David Arcidiacono is the author of Major League Baseball in Gilded Age, Connecticut. Connecticut, halfway between New York and Boston, right? Today, Connecticut's location between those two cities really hurts them, right, as far as getting a major league team. Back then, in the 1870s, with transportation being what it was, it was an eight-hour train ride from Boston to New York. And so in 1876, when the National League formed... It's today's National League. It's the same National League that, you know, the New York Mets play in. And the Chicago Cubs and the L.A. Dodgers and the Colorado Rockies. It started in 1876, and Hartford was a charter member. Some of the great names of early baseball played here. Billy Barney and Bill Boyd, Fancy O'Neill and Patty Quinn, Cherokee Fisher and Candy Cummings. By far the, the biggest name, as far as a player that came through Hartford during this major league time, right, was uh, Candy Cummings. Arthur Candy Cummings was renowned uh, as one of the first curveball pitchers. Some people said he invented it. He didn't invent it. Nobody knows who invented the curveball, but he certainly was the first pitcher to make. uh, He threw it very, very often, and he was very successful with it. So successful he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. George Schaefer played some outfield here. And they called him Orator Schaefer, I guess because he talked a lot. Bob Ferguson was the manager and the third baseman. Everyone loved Bob Ferguson. In fact, a a Hartford merchant started his own brand of cigars called Captain Bob in honor of Bob Ferguson. And a guy named Tommy Barlow played for the Dark Blues. He was famous for possibly being the inventor of the bunt. He would get up to bat with a a two-foot-long bat and try to lay down a bunt. They mocked him all the time. But he was very effective with it. Barlow hit 297 here as the first guy regularly deploying the derided bunt. Well, it was viewed as unmanly. Like, who's going to get up there and, and not take a big swing at the ball? Why, why are you up there just trying to lay it down in, in between the pitcher and the catcher? Uh, they called it Barlow's Dodo. The game was full of firsts at that time, and the Dark Blues were a part of lots of them. They had the National League's first no-hitter thrown against them. They had the National League's first triple play turned against them. Hartford center fielder Jack Remsen hit the first ever leadoff home run. And in September of 1876, after a rainout, Hartford was host to the first ever doubleheader. Candy Cummins pitched both ends of that doubleheader. First time a pitcher had ever done that, obviously. Uh, So, you know, Hartford definitely uh, was a team of firsts in the National League. But after the 1876 season, the team packed up and moved to Brooklyn. And they were the first team to do that, too. And the only team to do it for 80 years until the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles in 1957. But so the Hartford Dark Blues moved to Brooklyn and became the Brooklyn Hartfords. Right, a little oxymoronic, the Brooklyn Hartfords, but they maintained the Hartford name mostly to draw on uh, the good reputation that the Hartford team had. A Hartford baseball team that doesn't play any of its games in Hartford. That seems familiar, doesn't it? But starting that next year, in 1877, 
and for most of the next 75 years, Hartford still had professional baseball teams. Hartford had minor league baseball teams. Teams like the Hartford Babies and the Hartford Bluebirds and the Hartford Bees. There were the Hartford Laurels and, probably my favorite, the Hartford Wooden Nutmegs. But the best-known teams from the first half of the 20th century were the Hartford Senators and the Hartford Chiefs. Uh, Lou Gehrig played on that team. Under an assumed name, Henry Lewis. The Yankees were kind of hiding him. Hall of Famer Warren Spahn pitched here. Hank Greenberg, right, another Major League Hall of Famer. Joe Torre's brother Frank Torre played for the Chiefs in the 50s. So those are some big names that were playing down in uh, what was called Clarkin Field, which later became Buckley Field down on Hammer Street. Looking back at those old rosters, there aren't a lot of guys who played in Hartford in the 1930s and 40s and early 50s who are still alive. But one guy who is still alive had maybe the best minor league season anyone's ever had in Hartford. Gene Conley turns 87 years old this year, and in 1951, pitching for the Hartford Chiefs in their second-to-last season, he went 20-9 and and threw nine shutouts and won minor league player of the year, the only player from any of Hartford's teams ever to do that. He lives in Massachusetts with his wife, Catherine, who he's been married to for 66 years. I called him up on a Saturday afternoon a few weeks ago and asked him if he'd help me try to tell the story of pro baseball in Hartford the last time it was here, going on 70 years ago. Sure, I'd be glad to help you a little bit. Okay, excellent. Um, If I can remember that far. (laughs) Conley's one season in Hartford in 1951 was his first season as a professional athlete. He and Catherine had just gotten married that spring, and he had just turned 20 years old. Yeah, I, was, I just turned 20, and I didn't know what I was getting into, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but it was, Tommy Holmes had just After retired. pitching in Hartford, Conley, who was a 6-foot, 8-inch pitcher at a time when there weren't a lot of 6-foot, 8-inch pitchers, played 11 seasons in the majors and 6 seasons of basketball in the NBA. He's one of only two people who've ever won championships in more than one of America's four major sports. He won the World Series with the Milwaukee Braves in 1957, and he won three NBA championships with the Boston Celtics. But he still remembers guys he played with in Hartford in 1951, and which ones made it to the majors and which ones didn't. There was a guy named Jack Daniels, played outfield, and I think the Braves took him up for a part-time in 1952. I asked Conley what he remembered about the night he won his 20th game, a milestone for a pitcher, and probably a big part of how he won Player of the Year. I remember a couple of things happened. I was I was having a good, real good year, and uh, at that time I was we were only making about oh two or three hundred dollars a month, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was going for my twentieth win at the end of the season there, and they they had a, a Connolly night for me. And uh, about the seventh inning, my wife was pregnant at the time. And she didn't want to go out on the field, but they wanted us to go out on the field, and it was during the seventh inning stretch. And I had a, a, a zero to zero ball game going for my 20th win on my night. And there they bring her out there and give us a suitcase and some other little gift, <laughs> you know, for having a good year. Right. And uh, then they, they announced they were going to pass the hat around the stands. And they must have had about, oh, I don't know. So I had a pretty good crowd that night. And they started passing the hat around. And uh, we come up with a little over $600. <laughs> there I was out there trying to win a ball game. <laughs> and they're passing the hat around to get me some money. You won the game, though, too, as I understand. Yeah, we won the game. We, I got a shutout, and they got the money. Took it, took it home. 
shoot, that was, that was two months' pay. <laughs> that was the 1951 season. But in 1952, on September 7th, 1952, the Hartford Chiefs... They played a doubleheader on the last day of the season. They swept the doubleheader. And that was the last time professional baseball was played in Hartford. Over the 79 seasons from 1874 through 1952, Hartford had a professional baseball team for all but 13 of them. But after 1952, for 23,594 days starting on September 7, 1952, Hartford has been without a team of its own. Until now. Playability-wise, it was fine, but there were a lot of extra pregame ceremonies. But it held up well. I talked to Kyle Calhoun again to check in on the field after the Yard Goats' first six home games, of which they lost the first five in a row. Of course you want them to uh, play well on your field, but at the same time, the other team was hitting well and fielding well, and uh, it plays the same for both teams. After the losing streak, there was a rainout, and then the Yard Goats got their first ever home win, a one to nothing shutout. Overall, played well. I think we got a lot of compliments from the players, and uh, I was happy with the first homestand. In Peter Morris's book, Level Playing Fields, he writes about how the figurative elements of baseball have replaced the literal ones, how we start to see it as this poetic, abstract thing, rather than a simple, straightforward game played on simple, straightforward fields. As we take our kids to ball games and we try to explain baseball, we, you know, we explain all the nuances of it, and, and they look and they just see a bunch of adults playing in the dirt. And, you know, in a sense, that's what it is. You can come up with lots of fancy metaphors for baseball, and you can come up with all kinds of you know, uh, complicated explanations. But, you know, really, it, it's still, in the end, it's just a game in which uh, adults who have supposedly grown up and moved on to better things are, you know, just playing in the dirt. Or just playing in the engineered soil blend, anyway. Coming up on the second first season. Brian McMahon, who was a top 100 prospect. And there's real power there. You know, he's a guy that can hit home runs. And he can hit home runs to all fields. He's got power to all fields. He's going to be a guy that can be in the middle of the lineup and be a fun guy to watch. It's minor leagues. It's a player development. Do I worry about developing players? That's what I worry about. I don't worry about wins and losses. Reportedly, and a few newspapers reported it, a medical student at Hartford Hospital, to play a, a joke on Mark Twain, actually took one of his case studies small cadaver and left it on the uh, porch at the Mark Twain house on Farmington Avenue. This episode of the second first season was edited by Katie Tularski and Jeff Cohen. Heather Brandon is the digital editor. Katie Tularski is the executive producer. Thanks to Tucker Ives, David Eskenazi at Sports Press Northwest, Mark Blau at the State of Washington Sports Hall of Fame, and Cassidy Lent at the Giamatti Research Center at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Lydia Brown was our 19th century narrator, and our theme song is by the great Jim Chapdelaine. You can find the second first season on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on the web at wmpr.org slash second first. You can find me on Twitter at McNicholPants. The second first season is a production of WNPR. I'm Jonathan McNichol.